0: I'm Skip Papersley with an important news bulletin.
1: Booked episodes available everywhere. Listen to Booked on iTunes, Stitcher, Instacast, Podcast.com, the Zoom Marketplace, and BookedPodcast.com.
0: You can even hear Booked episodes playing through the conference room door of James Patterson's lawyer's office. This has been Skip Papersley reminding you where you can find episodes of booked. Thank you.
2: The book to the Noir at the Bar sessions. I'm Libby
0: Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. So, since this is our first episode in our Noir at the Bar sessions uh, series, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our history with Noir at the Bar and kind of what you're going to expect to hear from us. So, Noir at the Bar, you've, if you've listened to us before, you've, you've definitely heard us talk about it. Uh, earlier this year, we uh, went down to St. Louis at the beginning of March, no, I'm sorry, the end of February, and recorded an entire Noir at the Bar. Uh, event. So we had five different episodes of, of live readings from people who were uh, attending that Noir at the Bar event. Caleb Ross was there, Gordon Highland, um, Mark Tiedemann was there, Kevin Lynn Helmick, and even Nick Young, who was all the way in from South Africa. So Noir at the Bar is an event that is hosted by Jed Ayers in St. Louis, and it's a semi-regular reading event that uh, hosts, you know, kind of noir kind of crimey y uh, fiction Writers,
2: yeah, and what a great time we had while we were down there too. That was, uh, it's like that. Well, I guess that was our second booked field trip, but that was uh, that was a lot of fun. We had a, we had a great time there. But to speak more about why we're doing this now is uh, Noir at the Bar uh, Two. The second anthology is out, and that anthology um, is comprised completely of people who have read at a Noir at the Bar session. Not necessarily just St. Louis, but there are Noir at the Bars in other parts of the country as well. So we thought it'd be kind of cool to have a you know a few authors on to talk about their involvement both with Noir at the Bar and then more specifically you know a little bit about their story that appears in the new anthology, as well as some of their other writing.
0: So one of the important things to point out is one of the reasons that uh, the Noir at the Bar anthology exists is uh, the first one was put together entirely as a, uh, a, t- a sort of a charity situation. There's a bookstore in St. Louis called Subterranean Books. Which, um, you know, in these hard economic times was having a little bit of trouble. And so Jed Ayers and Scott Phillips decided to put an anthology together, uh, put it out there into the world, only have it available for sale through Subterranean, and pretty much use the proceeds, not the proceeds, the, uh, the profits and everything from that book to help Subterranean stay in business. So they were trying to drive extra business over there and, and get a little bit of money going back into that store. So um, I can't think of a better reason to, to put an anthology out. Um, and so uh, this is just kind of a continuation of the, the popularity of that first
2: anthology. So that's the, the tried and true, a simple explanation. What we're going to give you is a piece of the uh, forward, I guess, that Jed Ayres wrote. Um, so this is a little not safe for work. I'm going to read to you directly from Noir at the Bar 2. The first Noir at the Bar anthology featured a broad range of noir flavors. Our authors busted the seams of genre in a dozen different directions. And with this, the second schizo vision of crime fiction for now, we may have actually broken noir. Yes, some of the stories in this collection you'd be hard-pressed to find any prosecutable actions in, but they're steeping in transgression and moral failure up to their tits. The writers got the wrong right, and that's worth more to us than a hundred brilliantly plotted whodunits. Don't worry, we brought the violence too. We won't leave you blue-balled for mayhem. And sex, you bet. In fact, you may wish we hadn't. Sorry, you're stuck with it. It cannot be unread.
0: That's good old Jed Ayers for you. Yeah,
2: I've read some of these stories. I know you have too, and I think he's right. They absolutely cannot be unread.
0: Yeah, I'll testify that uh, he's, not, <laughs> he's not being grandiose. He's a... Uh, He's really feeding it to you straight.
2: And then when these the series of interviews is over, we're actually going to um, review the book like we do would normally, and uh, it's going to be interesting to talk about some of these stories. Some of them may or may not come up in this series of interviews.
0: That's right. So the first interview that we've got to kick off the Noir de Bar sessions is going to be with Matthew C. Funk. We had a chance to talk to him recently and had a lot of fun, so I'm glad we can share it with you now.
2: All right, here's a little bit about Matthew C. Funk. Uh, Matthew is a social media consultant, professional marketing copywriter, and writing mentor. He is an editor of Needle Magazine and a staff writer for Planet Fury and Criminal Complex. Winner of the 2010 Spine Tingler Awards for Best Short Story on the Web, Funk has online work at numerous sites indexed on his web domain and printed in Needle, Speedloader, Grift, Pulp Inc., Pulp Modern, Off the Record, and Dicked.
0: Hey, Matt. Thanks so much for uh, taking some time to come on and talk to us over here at Booked.
1: Glad to be on, Rob. Thanks. Mac. you start
2: out by telling us a little bit about how you came to be involved with uh, Jet Air, Scott Phillips, and Noir at the Bar?
1: Absolutely. I just kind of pinballed my way into their path. Uh, the Noir at the Bar was notorious by the time that I showed up on the social media end of things. Uh, that is to say, making connections over Facebook and getting involved in a lot of the similar journals. And, um... It was to the extent that they were already discussing opening up a chapter of Noir at the Bar out here in the West, which ultimately Eric Beatner and uh, Stephen Blackmore did. In any event, uh, you know, Jed and, and Scott and I were sort of crossing paths on the interwebs and then eventually hooked up at BoucherCon uh, a couple years ago. And then, of course, last year in St. Louis, the heart of Noir at the Bar, So that relationship just kind of grew out of similar creative vectors and similar social circles until I was honored to be invited into this anthology.
0: I noticed, too, that actually you were part of the uh, Dict anthology with uh, the stories that were inspired by Dick Cheney. Um, And and Jed edited that, so you guys kind of had worked on stuff before, right?
1: Yeah, we had. Uh, Jed and I, um, well, I think... Yeah, all three of us met at Bausha Con in San Francisco, which was two years ago. And it was there that the Dix anthology was being floated around. So I seized on that because I'm pretty hungry for whatever writing opportunity comes my way. And uh, it was delightful. I mean, I thought that it was more of a satirical tone to the collection, and I went for more serious, but, you know, screw it. You know, I'll find a time and a place for a satirical elsewhere.
2: Tell us a little bit about what you thought of your uh, of your actual reading experience at the. Was it at the Masuga Cafe? It was.
1: Yeah. Uh, I believe it was. I, I see. I, I I raced there in a flurry. I found <laughs> St. Louis streets terribly confusing, just kind of like a blend of of Boston, New Orleans. Which, if you wanted to blend two traffic systems, you don't want to blend those two. At least, not if efficiency <laughs> is your aim. So I got there with like what I felt to be like two minutes to spare. I crammed myself into a room the size of an elevator so if that's sounding familiar then definitely the Meshugga Cafe. Um, There were like about I don't know 83 people in there. Uh, I exaggerate but it it felt that much. There was certainly that much body heat and um, it was a great experience. I I had gone over uh, the piece that I was going to read because I'd been on a road trip with my agent we'd sort of uh, bookended uh, our trip with one a reading by Frank Bill who had um, a collection called Crimes in Southern Indiana coming out. So we hooked up there because my agent represented him. And then we basically decided, hey, you know, we don't have anything to do for three days until Noir uh, until BoucherCon, of course, Noir at the bar. So we spent most of the time like drinking whiskey and hanging out at a lake house in Alabama, which was great but really <laughs> debilitating. So I was just like pouring sweat and really tired when I arrived at Noir at the bar, but I had a really nasty piece to read, something called The Grinder which had not been published before, I read it, and much like with my dick piece, it totally did not fit the tone of the event. Like, everybody had done kind of, like, quasi-comedic BDSM pieces and, like, <laughs> things with, like, really clever kind of reveals, like, like oh the hamster killed him, you know, that kind of thing. And I cruised in with, like, a straightforward story of kid gets his hand stuck in a meat grinder, the end. Like it was, it was just, just horrible. And I mean, there was more to it, but, uh, you know, uh, even Scott was just like, uh, yeah, I'm really afraid of you now. Like, uh, uh he was, he was kind of disturbed. So there was that. And I've, I've read out in the Western chapter as well, because I live outside of Los Angeles. So I've attended the LA Noir at the bar a number of times, about three times and read there.
0: Right on. So, um, speaking of the type of stories that you write from what we've what we've seen of you, uh, it seems like it's pretty dark and violent. Um, Is there something in particular that draws you to that uh, that type of uh, subject matter, I
1: guess? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I've said a number of times before, for the sake of just delivering an answer in shorthand, that my interest in writing is to reveal human extremes. And by that I mean humanity in extreme situations that reveals the best and worst of our psychology and so violent environments violent people people who take a certain line of logic to an extreme fascinate me i like to however eschew like grandiose or political plots because that brings it on a level of almost entertainment you know it it, it becomes something that's larger than the common experience and and what i like to convey through my writings even though often it is grotesquely violent or deals with really depraved personalities is that these people are all over they're behind the line uh in the grocery store and they are just like strolling by on your street walking their dog and at any moment they could really go off the deep end and horrible things could happen so that's what i'm aiming for with my gruesomeness i just want to convey the commonality of, uh, violence in extreme situations. I like that because
0: one of the things that I think is very attractive about someone like, and this is, I mean, obviously just like the most common name that I think you could think of is, um, like Bukowski is that he just writes stuff that's really, really real, you know? And, and that's what drew me to his style of writing was just like that stark depiction of reality.
1: Absolutely. And actually I have a number of pieces that mothball because they lack a venue. I don't know venues for social realism as well as they do crime. That's simply due to the people that I associate with. And yet, that is to say, like you noted, I have a number of pieces that I would consider, um, you know, just, I hesitate to say like literary pieces, but, you know, pieces that don't necessarily rely on crime plot conventions to carry the story, that are more just about like somebody in a tragic situation. Because that's ultimately my my aim with writing, a a piece that I'm working on right now that's long form, uh, is, for lack of a better term, talking about the decay and uh, toxic condition of the nuclear family in America, that, you know, because of the nature of culture and politics and the economy being what they are, things are just getting, you know, kind of rotting away from the American dream that we knew in the last century. And that kind of thing interests me more than you know, uh, a clever whodunit or an intricate plot, even though I feel I can manifest those, I don't feel that there's as much worth to the writing, at least for me.
2: With working on subject matter, either, either dark in the violent way or even dark in more the literary kind of way, the non-crimey way you were just talking about, do you find that affects your mood, like when you're writing that?
1: Literally, when I'm writing that, yes. I, I can get pretty worked up. Uh, afterwards, I feel terrific. Uh, I think that... I do a lot of that to externalize what I'm already feeling because during the course of a day, especially since I have a desktop, I sit around and I sponge up all this horrible stuff that's going on out there. You know, I see it shared over Facebook or it pops into my Google alerts for, say, New Orleans crime, or it floats across, you know, the Drudge Report or the Huffington Post. And I, so I'm, I'm taking in all that really vile uh, absurdity, and I need some way to channel that. I, it also is a way of of putting some personal experiences out there because quite a number of my stories I, I've picked up from you know friends. They may not have gone through as extreme a situation, but the the plot nevertheless is there. Whether it's you know an ailing child or a vengeful father or what have you, and so this is my outlet. And my mood is generally ecstatic when I'm done with it, because I I feel like I've taken something that was truly poisonous and turned it into something beneficial.
2: That's very interesting.
0: Right on. Um, So for the Noir at the Bar 2 anthology, your story in there is called Froggy, Mickey and the Blonde. Uh, Do you want to just tell our listeners a little bit really quickly about what that story is?
1: Yes, that story is basically an incubus. It was this horrible creature that sat on my chest at four in the morning when I couldn't sleep and refused to let me rest until I turned it out. And I, I, I know authors often say like, oh, this story, you know, just demanded to be told. Well, this one really kind of did. And I'll, I'll tell you how uh, it came to demand that, how it sunk its claws into me. Uh, I had been going through a period where I decided in order to stay relevant, I had to churn out just a shit ton of short stories, just like this huge harvest of short stories. Um, and in order to enact that with my busy schedule, I was drinking tons of coffee and I was working constantly. And uh, in order to unwind, quote unquote, I'm doing rabbit ears, you can't see, but like, <laughs> okay, air quotes right here, unwind, I decided to like watch this show. Called I think Wicked Attractions. It's on Netflix. It's one of those Discovery Channel esque shows about um, pairs of serial killers or pairs of really um, despicable people. And so I, I was watching this one show. It was about the third in the series. Again, around two or three in the morning. And the people that they were talking about, the pair of serial killers, they they were so nice to each other. They were like really kindly and they had like all these kind of charming quirky eccentricities and I thought to myself you know so often in literature the serial killer is either like a Ted Bundy character where he has this charming veneer but a a rotten underside or he's just an utterly dysfunctional human skin wearing skull sipping (laughs) maniac. and I thought well you know it would be interesting to write about people who they're kinda goofy they love each other they have strange superstitions And yet they do terrible, terrible things because it it happens. And so, with those two characters in mind, Froggy and Mickey, who I created, I then uh, stuck it in a a premise that I had of this one particular cop, Ethan Morrissey, who's shown up in a number of my other stories, as I primarily write about events in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. And I had felt that Ethan had never had his origin story, and so I interwove that with the other two characters as a force majeure in the story, and the result is the terribly sad and and sickening story that I submitted to Noir at the Bar. You said you're primarily
0: right uh, about things going on in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. Is there a specific reason for that? Is it just like a setting that you enjoy, or is it something else?
1: Well, I certainly enjoy it, but it was a very conscious decision that drew me there. Usually when I research topics, I do so in a way that, It's kind of like vines seeking the sun. Like I I, Mm. I start to go off in a general strategic direction and then like go wherever my interest takes me. And this was at a point where I had just finished a horror novel, or excuse me, a a historical fiction novel, and I felt I hadn't really hit the nail square on the head. I wanted to find another genre that spoke to the kind of themes that I wanted to write about. Like you were noting sort of a, a stark social realism and... Yet at the same time, human extremes and plots that really seize my imagination, and so I decided to go into crime. But you, you simply can't go into it, at least in my opinion, without finding some inspiration. And and in, if the inspiration is a setting, that's especially you now especially exciting. And and it, to be candid, uh, commercial as well, because I'm somebody who's in marketing. I have a degree of brand consciousness. And writers that adhere to a particular environment do well, not only in that environment, but they come to be known as like, oh, yeah, Stephen King, he's the guy who writes about horror stories in Maine. Or like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, Michael Connelly, he's the L.A. guy. Or Robert Crace, he's the L.A. guy. And to that point, you know, I too was an L.A. guy. I live in Orange County. I grew up in L.A. I didn't want to be another L.A. guy. So um, I wanted a place that really struck a spark. With what I most enjoy in literature, and what I felt was a really great uh, fuel for my themes—again, that notion of human extremes—and New Orleans was perfect, because New Orleans is its own little planet, and yet it's essentially American. It's particularly bitchy about itself, and yet it's as vain as it comes. It has all these ends of the spectrum. It has, um, you know, this aristocracy in the upper classes, and yet it has crushing poverty. It has pride and violence all coupled together. And so I was kind of drawn there and immediately clicked with it. And in particular, having an awareness that there were other writers out there who are writing about New Orleans, I wanted to write about the, the area that I thought was most relevant not only to the city's character, um, but to crime. And that is the um, the eastern New Orleans. That isn't to say that they, they don't have crime and poverty in the center of the city, they do. But the Ninth Ward is almost notoriously poor and desperate and crime-ridden. And so, you know, looking at the works of, say, James Lee Burke or Julie Smith, I was thinking, well, you know, they, they write the French Quarter New Orleans. They they write Tourist New Orleans. And I don't want to write Tourist New Orleans. I want to write where the place, uh, I want to write the place where the, the record homicides are actually taking place. And so I chose the Ninth Ward. And in particular, Desire, because how can you not write about a place called desire? If you're writing crime, it's perfect. <laughs> no I think
2: you mentioned, you kind of, uh, launch yourself into writing short stories. I was on your website earlier today and I believe I counted 84 published short stories that, that are it's, listed it's,
1: there. It's about that. Yes.
2: Yeah. Um, do you find that going back, you said, you know, you're working on some longer form stuff. Do you find that writing that much short stories kind of, I don't want to say hurts your ability, but that you get stuck kind of in that mode, it becomes harder to write longer because you've done so much of the other one?
1: No, I think that the only difficulty is in switching gears, and that's purely logistically. It It takes a little bit to adjust my schedule from say writing a short story rough draft in the evening or in the morning and then editing it two days later into my novel pacing which is more a matter of i generally write uh... three or four days straight and then i take like two days off and then i'll go back to it Um, that's the only disparity and that's because whenever i sit down to a project regardless of of its length i think to myself okay what form is going to serve this like are they going to be short chapters they going to be long chapters I, I kind of plan out its general format in my mind and then work towards that. So I don't find that short stories are, are difficult. I mean I, I get your meaning because they're they're more concise stories. Uh novels take longer to evolve, but I, I haven't had any difficulty in adjusting my imagination to that. Uh the only difficulty would be adjusting my schedule.
0: So outside of writing looks like you do a little work with uh, are you still doing work with Needle edit, uh, in the doing editing? I do, yes. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely, that, that was a, a total random joy um, there were two, no excuse me, three guys from my agency who were associated with Needle magazine uh, one of them was leaving and they said hey do you want to, to come on? Um, it's been an absolute delight I, I've always adored Needle It's a very good group of people working on it, uh, all very positive, committed to the quality of the work. And it gives me an opportunity to read all these awesome stories that are out there. And also, to an extent, perfect my own writing because uh, I remember a screenwriting teacher told me once that, you know, if you want to learn how to write good films, you, you should watch bad films. You should watch like a lot of bad films because bad films still get made like you can look at just go with it and say like how on earth you know in a sane universe would that have occurred and gotten millions of dollars behind it but it did and and yet at the same time you can see the flaws so you look at it and you say okay well where are the underpinnings that make sense that elevated this to a level that got it produced and then of course in the case of literature that got it published and then where did they fall short and it's much the same case with needle because I'm going through, say, 15 stories in a batch, and I choose two or three out of those. Well, where did the others fall short? Um, I never dismiss a story and say, "Oh, I just, I just didn't like it." You know, I just, uh, I didn't connect with me. I, I will sit down and, in fact, spend as much time, if not more so, with the story that I reject to say, "Okay, well, this is what didn't work in particular, and this was a little slow, and and this was disjointed, and so forth." So. It's an educational experience for me, it's an inspiration considering the activity, and it's just an honor because I value the magazine so much.
0: A little follow-up, not even a question, but a comment, and it's just surprising how consistent this is. Everybody that we've talked to that's uh, been an editor for really anything, but especially anybody who's basically receiving stories and deciding whether they make the cut or not, without fail, every single one of them we've talked to has said exactly that, that like... uh, (laughs) You learn more from the mis- like other people's mis you know other people's mistakes. Essentially, uh, you said that, and I, it had been a while since we talked to anybody. So I was like, "Yes, exactly." I, again, again, we're hearing this. So that's that's pretty awesome to hear that from you as
2: well. Very cool. So you just appeared in uh, Noir at the Bar, Volume Two, even Noirier. I don't know if that's <laughs> if that's what we're calling it. but even Noirier, yeah, well, I like the white sons. Yeah. what are we going to see next from you? What are you working on?
1: Well, you're going to see uh, a deluge of short stories, because the, the flood that I mentioned earlier that I manifested in the spring of 2012 is going to come to, you know, pour through all these different channels. One is the Shotgun Honey anthology, Shotgun Honey being an online site that I'm featured at rather consistently. In particular, one character of mine, Jerry Jurgis, who started off in Thuglit, but who I've since used as an avatar for all these various other crime story ideas. She's going to have a story in Shotgun Honey's anthology, I believe it's called Both Barrels, that's coming out in September. I have uh, another anthology installment that's going to be coming out in September, that's uh, The Lost Children, Volume 2, uh, The Protectors, which I took as ironic. Again, I have this problem fitting in with anthologies, like... (laughs) They said, like, lost children, you know, these poor abused children, the protectors. I was like, oh, you mean, like, the protectors, like, the people who hurt the children. I didn't realize they were completely sincere. And so this, they have this cover of, like, this girl hugging a dog, and the dog's kind of curled over her. There's this heartwarming cover. And mine's about this mother who basically whores her daughter out. <laughs> and so, eh, I don't know, a little bit off the mark then I also have a story coming out in in Thuglit's reboot Thuglet is coming back it's a great online zine it's actually my first major publication it was in Thuglet a number of years ago uh, I'm gonna be in number one of that and I also have a drive-in novella coming out and that's what I'm particularly enthused about just because I've never published a novella and, and I'm I'm quite proud of this it's it's not in any way shape or form the height of my craft. I'm not looking at this and being like, ah, yes, this is you know where Picasso basically abandons form and you know truly embraces the abstract. Like, no, no, it's it's pretty just straight up noir schlock with a dose of funk to make it beautiful. But um, what I like is the subtext. There's there's a ton of subtext. So I like the characters as well. So I'm thrilled about that. And that's going to be called a woman and a knife, which is actually a little tidbit that only you guys will will get privy to uh, a reference to De Palma's statement where he said the essence of horror is a woman and a knife. And my story kind of plays with that idea, the the double meanings of that. Very cool.
0: Very cool. So, Matt, is there anything else you'd like to plug or pimp that we uh, may have forgot to bring up already?
1: Yes, indeed. I am assured to have a novel coming within the next year. I, I vow this... As good as written in blood, it will happen. It will, in all likelihood, be focused on a, an environment familiar to my fan base, which is to say uh, the South, likely New Orleans. Uh, that's all I can say about it at this time. Otherwise, keep your fingers crossed and your eyes on the horizon.
2: Very exciting stuff there. Yeah. Um, so, Matt, tell people where they can find you online, where they can keep up with everything you're doing.
1: Well, the mecca of all things Matthew Funk is MatthewFunk.net, which I own MatthewFunk.com. I should probably get it running, but right now it's simply MatthewFunk.net because that's what's on all those business cards that I bought. Uh, Other than that, Shotgun Honey uh, remains one of my haunts, so always good to check out Shotgun Honey, even if I'm, I'm not necessarily featured there. And otherwise, you can find me on Facebook where, like it or not, I spend most of my time because my day job is a social media consultant, so... I'm kind of gross, kind of marooned there.
2: <laughs> the rest of us have to sneak Facebook on our phones, and you get to sit at a desk all day with Facebook wide open. That's that's kind of cool
1: too. Right. It's kind of the opposite for me. Like like most people, again, they have Facebook open, and they have to minimize that window. Bring up like a TPS report. I have to raise the Facebook and be like, No, no, no. Honestly, I was on Facebook, guys. I was on YouTube. I was watching this video. I was checking my fantasy football scores.
2: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, thanks a lot for taking time to come to talk to us here about Noir at the Bar, too. Hey, it was a pleasure and an honor, guys. Thanks. Big thanks to Matt Funk for taking that time. What a great interview.
0: Yeah, um, he's he's got a lot of stories.
2: <laughs> you think? Was it like 84 or something? That's yeah. insane.
0: Pretty prolific dude. and. <laughs> wait here's the thing too like with the way that he writes so dark and everything you don't know what his personality is going to be like but he was just like the nicest guy
2: yeah i guess yeah i guess we have to change our expectations because now we're starting to expect all these guys to just be serial killers after reading this stuff (laughs) yeah but he was cool yeah again the tough thing about having a a podcast you know i read his stuff just now i've read a couple other pieces of his online you know over the last however long and it's like now i look and i go My God, I I can't, I can't, I can't commit to reading all this stuff. So just, just, just too much. So So if you haven't been to a noir at the bar reading, here's what I suggest you do. Go back and listen to episodes 68 through 72. They're very short. Each episode is uh, is uh, one of the authors um, that we recorded while we were down in St. Louis at the Meshuggah cafe, best coffee I've ever had and uh and go back and listen to a couple of those it'll kind of give you a feel for what you can expect if you should decide to go to uh one of the noir at the bar plus you know what else is kind of cool what's that all five of those guys are in this uh are in this collection all five of the people that read at our the reading we recorded
0: that's right and um you also get to hear the sultry uh sounds of the the hosts talking a little bit up there so jet airs and and Scott Phillips doing their little intros and their half drunken slurring, you know, conversation wow. and stuff. Well wow. Jed was a little Jed got a little slurry, that's all I'm saying.
2: <laughs> all right. But you know what? You know what they say about Jed? What's that? Just a giant teddy bear. He is. Seven feet of sweetness. <laughs> that's right. All right. Um, don't forget to tune back in soon for another Noir at the Bar session. I'm Livia Snudden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. <laughs>